Welcome to Ruling Sports, a podcast giving you a playbook for life. I'm your host, Alicia Jessup. Join me as I interview athletes, leaders, and innovators to uncover their game plans for success and give you insights to rule your life. Let the play clock begin. After I finished recording this episode, I sat back and said to myself, yes, this is why the Ruling Sports Podcast exists. I started this show to highlight for athletes and others that regardless of the success they have attained in their respective field of play, even greater opportunity awaits them. Today's guest is former college basketball player and co-founder of Power Hands, Darnell Jones. Co-founded with his wife, Danielle, Power Hands is an athletic training and rehabilitation company. The company's products are used and endorsed by top professional athletes across multiple sport leagues. In 2022, Power Hands received a multi-million dollar round of funding from Vanguard Holdings Group. Darnell's story is a perfect example of someone who performed at a high level as an athlete, but went on to attain even greater success. In this episode, Darnell discusses how competing in college basketball prepared him for entrepreneurship, especially through the lessons of resilience it provided. Darnell also tells us why resilience is a key attribute for any entrepreneur. Darnell then provides listeners with incredible insights of what it takes to navigate the landscape as an entrepreneur. Here, he explains why focusing on the consumer is the key to entrepreneurial success and why entrepreneurs should ask for negative feedback about their product or service at the earliest stage of a company's existence. Darnell is someone who has founded multiple companies. In this episode, he talks to us about founding his first company, Tux, a patented underwear design meant to keep shirts tucked in. This is such a great conversation because Darnell walks listeners through the entire life cycle of the entrepreneurial process discussing ideation, design, manufacturing, and how to get a product to market. He even tells us about how the product landed him on the hit television series Shark Tank and how an unexpected outcome led to other opportunities. In detailing the founding of Power Hands, Darnell explains the value of being flexible in the plans one has for a business, but he tells listeners that passion must always be the guiding light for what entrepreneurial path they choose to follow. Finally, Darnell details for listeners how Power Hands has secured millions of dollars in funding and his own strategy for how to successfully finance a startup. He also discusses the keys to building a brand that athletes and celebrities alike love. You're going to want to listen to this episode to the end because here he shares an incredible story of the late Chadwick Boseman. This episode is like a real life MBA degree that you can get in less than 30 minutes. Trust me, it's going to inspire athletes and non-athletes alike that even after attaining great success, even more opportunity awaits so long as you ignite a new passion. So now join me in welcoming Darnell Jones to the Ruling Sports Podcast. 
Darnell, welcome to the Ruling Sports Podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today about your athletic and entrepreneurial journeys. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. What goal, quote, or mindset has guided your life? You know, I wish I would have learned it earlier in life, but there's a quote that I that I live by and my family probably gets sick of hearing it, but it's nothing is so good or so bad that the mind does not make it so. And the meaning behind that is when something really, really good in your life happens, it maybe wasn't as good as you actually thought it was. Uh, and when something really, really bad happens in your life, it maybe wasn't as bad as, as you thought it was. Your mind really can make things really good or really bad. So uh, it's a way for me to stay somewhat even keel, whether it be good or bad, and not try to get off kilter. So that's, uh, that's one that I live by and that I probably say far too often. <laughs> How did it come into your life? How did that quote come into your life? Yeah, coach of mine in college, um, it was very unique, and I thought it was, it was really cool. Um, when we would stretch and warm up before we started practice, he would give us a piece of paper that had our outline for the day, and then it would have a quote. Every day, there'd be a new quote. So the journey of a, mile, a million miles begins at the first step, and there'd be, I mean, you know, we'd, we'd have a different one. It seemed like there was probably 100. That one particularly stood out for me, and like I said, I've just, I've just taken a hold of it. I think it's a great piece of advice. The, the mind is a powerful tool. And if you can recognize that the mind or the brain is a tool, there's so much that you can achieve in life. You mentioned a college basketball coach. You actually were a team captain and academic all-conference basketball <clears throat> player at Mesa State College. Beyond this incredible coach and those quotes, what about college basketball prepared you to become an entrepreneur? I think for any athlete that goes through playing college sports, College sports is hard. It's, it becomes a job at that point. So you really got to love it. You really got to dig deep. And it's got to be something you're passionate about because it's not like high school where, you know, your weekends are your weekends and, you know, after practice is after practice. You know, college sports, are, it's, it's a, it's a full-time job and they're paying you to be a student athlete in most cases. And so they're expecting you to perform and they're expecting you to show up. And it's, it becomes a job. But for me particularly, I would say resilience. My personal journey through college was one that was probably a little different than most. My father was really sick back home. Uh, so I went to school about five hours from where, where I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. I would have to take frequent trips back home and I would get calls, you know, your dad's not doing well. You got to come home. And so I'd, you know, have to jump on a train and get back home. And then I went through four knee surgeries through college, wow. fractured my foot my senior year, and then ended up having to play my senior year with a fractured foot all year. So I would say resilience for me because I just had so many obstacles I had to overcome and I could have easily laid down. I could have easily given up. I could have easily said, I'm done playing. I'm done. You know, I'm done with, you know, my body's got to heal and, and what have you, but it was, it was a passion of mine and something that I wasn't going to let anything hold me back from finishing. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that story with us. For listeners who aren't entrepreneurs or business founders, can you explain why resilience is a key attribute that an entrepreneur possesses? Yeah. So I think, um, entrepreneurship is, is still, I mean, entrepreneurship is tough, right? I think we have to highlight reels on Instagram and, and things like that, that people show as entrepreneurs and, uh, and it always looks really good, but there's always, it's kind of like the iceberg, right? The vision of the iceberg and you don't see what's under the water. You just see what's on top of the water. And you get told no a lot. You know, if you're raising money, it's, it's a hard road to raise money. As an entrepreneur, you really have to understand how to do almost everything in your business because, you know, early on, it's, it's, it's often hard to fund employees to do specific tasks within your business. And so you have to understand how to run social media. You have to understand how to edit the video. You have to understand... If you have a product shipping and logistics, you have to understand how to create your business and, and what the tax implications are and how to manage a profit and loss statement. And so the resilience is important because it's there's so many things that come at you that it's very easy to get knocked off and just give up. But again, you've got to be passionate. You've got to be rooted in what you're doing. 
And, uh, and you've got to put the right people around you because you, you have to become a Swiss army knife as an entrepreneur or else it, it becomes an even longer and harder road. But, you know, it's rewarding, I think, not just financially when you start to see uh, profits come in, but when you start to get feedback from your consumer, the reward mm -hmm. is, uh, is very, uh, it's something that's really driven me far more than probably the, the financial gain has been the direct messages, the emails of, hey, your product is maybe a better, a better player or whatever it might be. Those things for me are what really, really keep me going. There's so many great things to unpack there. Now, listen, if you don't know what a Swiss army knife is, what, what he's trying to say <laughs> is Swiss army knives have a lot of different utilities that fold out of that package. But advice that I've heard from other entrepreneurs rings true to what you said there at the end. If you focus on the consumer, if you focus on creating the best possible product, service, or experience from the consumer and desiring that feedback, you're going to find success. It might not be tomorrow, but at some point your business will find success. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think the success could be that maybe you shouldn't start that business, right? Um, if you haven't started that business, one of the things that that I did early on with, with both companies, but one uh, that, we, that uh, Danielle and I did with Powerhead specifically is when we sent out products for different markets, we said, give us negative feedback. Don't give us positive feedback because hmm. we already we already feel like we understand positive feedback and we feel really good about it. Give us the negative feedback. Give us what's wrong with it, not what's right with it. And we hmm. did that in every market before we entered. We did it with professional athletes. We did it with high school kids. We did it with parents. If you're going to buy this for your kid, give us negative feedback. Would you be worried about whatever it might be? Right. And so I think having that feedback and, and really understanding where you're going and what you're doing is important playing sports and hearing feedback from coaches probably prepared you for receiving and accepting negative feedback. Absolutely. When you were a college basketball player, what was your vision for your future career? Did you want to be an entrepreneur then? No, I, I would say, no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even go as far to say that I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I was, I was, I was an athlete, right? I mean, since I, since I can remember, I think I started dribbling the basketball at two and a half or three years old. You know, I played golf and hit my first hole in one when I was 12 and I played football and we won, you know, three little league championships and I played baseball. So I was an athlete to the core. I happened to be just highly, highly passionate about basketball specifically. And so that's what I stuck with. Uh, but I had plan A. Plan A was, was going to the NBA and there wasn't plan B. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I burned the boats with that was what was going to happen. Now, of course, I always, you know, I always networked. I tried to always you know, hold myself with a certain amount of respect and, and, and uh, integrity. And, and I wanted to make sure that people around me knew what I stood for. So I did that. But in terms of what my goals were, it was, it was go to the NBA. What years did you play at Mesa State? So it would have been, I graduated in 2008. So 2006, 2008. I was a cheerleader at Colorado School of Mines, so I probably oh, saw wow. you back yeah, then. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, yes. went up, we played in a couple of tournaments uh, before the season started. And of course, they were in our conferences. So, and so we played there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, long live the RMAC. So, hey, guys, if you don't know what the RMAC is, we're, we're producing successful people in the RMAC. So that's, that's awesome. It's uh, funny how small the world is. You actually went on, though, to play professional basketball. You competed for the Utah Eagles of the Continental Basketball Association. But, you know, at some point, everyone's athletic career ends. What was that transition like for you? You know, first, I was, I was really happy that I got the opportunity. Uh, that I got the opportunity to actually play professional basketball, especially because I had six knee surgeries through college uh, in total, uh, four through college and then two just shortly after. Um, and then I fractured my foot my senior year in college. So still having a chance to go to the CBA 
and then and then having some some good games in the CBA and having a chance to get invited to some NBA summer league teams. Uh, ended up going to the Sacramento Kings summer league team. You know that was that was that was an amazing experience. But um, once I realized that my body wasn't going to hold up, and that I wanted, you know, one of my coaches, he said, "Hey, you know, you should really consider hanging it up if you want to be able to walk and play with your kids when you're 40." And I never really took that kind of feedback in the past because again, I had you know plan A. But uh, it was one that hit me uh, a little later that I thought, yeah, you know, maybe maybe there is another challenge out there for me. And uh, that's really when like the entrepreneurship bug kicked in. I was working in the medical device industry and, and a mentor and sponsor of mine who I ended up doing three medical device companies with uh, on the sale, and I ran sales and marketing in the South. He really sparked my entrepreneurial passion and interest. It became my new you know, passion like basketball was my passion. For me, it wasn't as hard uh, as I know that, you know, some of my, you know, teammates and guys that I grew up with that played, they, they took it really hard. Mm-hmm. But I, I really kind of transferred my energy and passion into entrepreneurship. And it was something that, you know, for me, it was, it, it was okay. So what was the name of the person who you were working with in the medical device space? Yeah, so Mike Brown. Uh, Mike Brown was his name. And uh, he, was a, he was a serial entrepreneur, executive in the medical device space and highly respected and I grew up with his son, Jordan Brown, uh, and we played ba- high school basketball together. And so uh, we ended up running into each other after I finished playing basketball. And he said, hey, you should sit down with my dad and talk to him. And I didn't know what his dad did particularly, but I knew he was very successful. And so I sat down with him and really understood what the medical device space was. And, and that was kind of what kicked off, kicked off that my, my first entrepreneurial and my first job, my first career. So that's awesome. So, so he was really a mentor to you then. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, from, geez, from 2009, from when we first started in 2009, and he moved me to Dallas up until 2014, I want to say, uh, 2015, we were together with three different companies and all three of them were sold. And it was great to, you know, be with something from the ground up and, and then have someone else have that much value in it to want to acquire it. So it was, it was great. Beyond him showing you that you could find success beyond athletics, are there particular lessons that you learn from him and his success as an entrepreneur? What's a big takeaway that you can share with the listeners? Yeah, I would say with him, it was just his drive. Uh, Mike was in his late 60s, uh, mid to late 60s when I met him. And he had made plenty of money up until that point in time. So he wasn't driven by the money. Uh, but he would go to trade shows and sit there all day. And he'd get on flights and come and travel and go to meetings with us. And I just kept thinking when I'm 66, I hope that I have the drive to continue yeah. to push through and want to just grind uh, like he grinded. And it was amazing to watch, but I would say it was probably just a stick to It actually reminded me of my mother a lot. My mother had a very similar drive. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it was one of those things that I just was like, people just, they don't have an off button. That is impressive. And they say that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And it sounds like he found something that he loved. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying the show. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Ruling Sports on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. It goes a long way to growing the show. Thank you for your support. We've been talking a lot about entrepreneurship. So now let's turn the corner a bit and get into how you founded your first company. Did you found your first company with your mentor, Mike? No, I didn't. So I, I worked with three medical device companies with him. And then shortly after our last exit, I started Tux, which was an underwear company used to keep your shirt tucked in. I had that issue because when I was working in the medical device industry, I was getting in and out of the car at different hospitals and my shirt would come untucked and I just couldn't stand it. Like I, I like my shirt to be nice and neatly kind of tucked in and I was getting out of the car and like having to retuck and it just bothered me. And so I actually just 
bought a pair of underwear and made like just made them myself for myself. And I thought after a while, maybe I should just make a business out of this because I saw the people with the issue and I started saying, hey, would this be of interest to you? And so I made some samples, gave it to different people. And that was kind of what started that started that whole first venture. You, you make this sound really easy. You're like, okay, I have this problem. I immediately know <laughs> what the solution is. I'm going to go to the mall, buy a pair of underwear. Did you have any design experience? I did not. Not whatsoever. I think I think I've always been like an engineer. I've always had like an engineer mindset where I look at things and I say, oh, how can we fix that? How can we make it better? How can we how can we tweak it? But I didn't have any design experience. I just knew, okay, this is what I want. This is what I want the end result to be. And then I just did research and, you know, worked with different manufacturers and just, you know, got the product to where I thought it needed to be. And I had some help at the time. At the time, I had a close friend of mine who was working with me as well. And we just hashed it out and it was a, it was a great experience, but it was not easy for sure. How long did it take to actually formulate the product? I would say from, from, uh, from ideation to actual, actually creating the product, I'd say it was about three and a half or four months wow, just because great. I was, yeah, I was manufacturing. So I would DHL fabric and, and different things to the manufacturers in China and they would send some stuff back and I'd make adjustments, send it back. I'd say it was about three and a half or four months where we came to our first kind of our first line of the product. So DHL is shipping. So you're shipping fabric back and forth to China. How did you find the manufacturers? Yeah. So at the time, well, actually, it's still probably Alibaba was kind of like the main source, you know, uh, for worldwide manufacturing. And it was great because Alibaba had a process where they'd make sure they were rated and they'd make sure they had a number of customers and did a number of revenue. And so you kind of could have a peace of mind uh, sending someone money or sending them product and knowing you're going to get it back. So they made it very easy. What was the hardest part of this process? I would probably say the communication and then getting the product right. Uh, because again, you're working with overseas manufacturers and communicating certain things. It's almost, it has to be written down, spoken, put in an email. So you have, you know, you have some record of it. I'd say, I'd probably say the communication was probably the hardest part. And then of course, you know, taking a product to market, that's, that's just a whole nother beast, right? How did you actually get it into the marketplace? So Tux, interestingly enough, Tux, I never launched it fully into the market. So I got a fully working prototype of that product. I got, a, uh, I went to a casting for Shark Tank. There was probably 5,000 people at the casting, uh, made it through uh, three different rounds of that. And then I pitched to the Sharks, but we didn't get it. We didn't get a deal and uh, they ended up not airing our episode. So uh, it wasn't aired, but it was a great process to go through, you know, the Sharks asked questions and I went through the whole process. And so it was good. It was a good learning experience and learning process. What's going on with the company today? Yeah. So Tux, I, I ended up shortly after we took Tux on Shark Tank, I got in, I had been approached by a few different investment groups and they wanted the patent because I had a patent in the, in the, in the EPO, which is your Euro, European countries and as well in the United States I had a non-provisional uh, patent. And so they wanted the patent because they wanted to manufacture and sell underwear to the military into the service industry to help keep their shirts tucked in. Hmm. Cause there was a kind of an older product they had for that, for the service industry. And so I wasn't really interested in that, but on the side, I was, uh, I was coaching a friend of mine, Darren Williams. I was coaching his AAU team here in Dallas and I was training, uh, training high school kids and junior high school kids. And then I started training some NBA guys and I would use different MacGyver like methods and which eventually became power hands, the first power hands product, which is our glove. And I really felt like I could get that product to market faster 
Mm-hmm. And I started the manufacturing process with that product. And I thought, let's sell the underwear company. I'll maintain a stake in it. I'll stay on the board with that company. But let's go focus on this, on the sports mm-hmm. product. Because my relationships, I was only four or five years removed from the NBA. So I still had a lot of friends or, or you know, the CBA. Uh, I still had a lot of friends in the NBA, uh, still a lot of relationships. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, at that point, we ended up selling it to that investment group. Like I said, I, I stayed on as an advisor and... Um, and they've they've started selling it. They're doing more uh, kind of wholesale, direct to B two B versus B two C, like I was doing. But yeah, companies still in existence. Okay, so a lot of great ideas and points to unpack here. First, though, did you use an attorney for your patents, or did you do it yourself? No, no, I use an attorney. Yeah, so so one of the first things I did was that when I came up in really with both products, uh, power hands or tux, you know, coming up with the first designs and the first ideas, you know, I got a provisional patent which gives you a, a short period of time before you go for a non-provisional, uh, a non-provisional patent. So I, I did that, kind of got the product right, made sure it was how I wanted it to look, how I wanted it to feel. And then I went for the non-provisional patent. So I did that. I, I want to say for the underwear, we spent between five to $10,000 all in on that. But of course, you know, depending on your product and depending on what you're patenting, it could it could be a lot higher or, you know, maybe right on the same price. What I love about what you discussed here is you're getting out of your car while working in medical device sales. And you probably had a vision that this product was going to serve business people, but you were willing to pivot and sell the company to service a different market of consumers, that market being people in the military because you had this other bigger opportunity brewing. I think so often we get into the mud on something that we've begun when in actuality, we might need to let that go or pivot course on it because there's something even bigger waiting behind it. Would you agree with that? I do. It's it's interesting though, because it, it, it depends. I kind of go back to the passion piece. If you're that passionate about it and you're digging in, and you don't want to get knocked off, meaning you don't want to get knocked off your path and your course that you have for yourself because of your passion, then I would say continue to do it. And, and you know what? Sometimes it's going to cost you a lot of money. It's going to be a big learning experience. But I, I think if you don't push through, then you could regret it. But if the passion is not there or, or the thing that you're going to be doing that, that's different, there's a bigger passion. I would go after that. And for me, the underwear was great and it served a purpose and it made a lot of sense. But power hands there was an internal burning passion because I trained with the initial products that were that we created. And I, I've used them and I've heard the feedback. And so the passion there was far different. And I knew that it'd be, it would be harder to knock me off my path with something I was that passionate about mm. versus the underwear, where if things get tough and you don't want to lose any more money or raise more money and lose other people's money, you know, it's a little easier to kind of fall off your off your goal with that. It goes back to a point you made earlier about resilience. Where is your resilience going to be sourced and passion can facilitate resilience? Do you want exclusive insights from your favorite athletes, sport industry leaders, and innovators delivered straight to your inbox? Subscribe today to the Ruling Sports Newsletter. The Ruling Sports Newsletter cuts the mystery out of success by bringing you leadership tools, entrepreneurial strategies, business insights, and wellness tips straight from some of the world's most positively impactful people. So go to rulingsports.com today and subscribe for free. So we're going to come into power hands now. A few minutes ago, you mentioned someone named Danielle. Can you tell listeners who Danielle is? Yeah, so Danielle Sorrenti Jones is my wife and co-founder of Power Hands. Uh, she's an amazing entrepreneur. Uh, she had a great career 
in the corporate space before I pulled her over into entrepreneurship with power hands. And so, yeah, that's Danielle. If you're willing to share, how did you two meet? Yeah, so we met here in Dallas and it was great. We, we, were, we were really good friends uh, to begin with. We both were in the medical device industry. So uh, that was kind of our common was kind of our common ground when we first met. We both just liked business. And so we would just talk business and, you know, friendship turned into dating and dating turned into marriage and the marriage turned into two kids and, and a dog. And, uh, you know, here we are. But no, nah, it's that was that was really what, what was our common ground was was business. What kind of dog do you have? We have a Frenchie. We have a oh, two-year-old okay. Frenchie named Billion. He's uh, he's awesome. So you kind of gave the backstory of Power Hands, but today, what is Power Hands product offering? Yeah, so today we offer almost a product for anything in the fitness and health and fitness and wellness space. So if you're looking at basketball, baseball, football, boxing, and MMA, uh, general fitness, we've got a product. Uh, we've got a line of weighted gloves. So what differentiates the gloves is the fitness gloves are fingerless. Uh, and they have a different padding on the hand. So you can, you know, if you're lifting weights or you're doing frosted or whatever you're doing, they're usable for that. If you're playing basketball, those gloves are anti-grip and they're weighted. So the anti-grip weighted gloves make it hard to maintain control of a basketball uh, and as well as football. It's hard to catch the ball. So when you're training, it's really, really hard. And when you're done training, it's really easy. And then we have a 10-pound weighted suit, which can be used really cross-functionally for any sport. Um, and then we've got some ancillary products, uh, pop-up defender which is a three and a half foot defender that collapses down to about six inches tall. Uh, very easy to, to transport. Uh, we've got the weighted basketball. We've got, we've got some for everyone. And in 2022, Power Hands Holding Company actually received a multi-million dollar capital injection from Vanguard Holdings. Now, funding's not easy to get. <laughs> what, what advice do you have for listeners who are either entrepreneurs or considering entrepreneurship on obtaining funding? A couple of things. I think make sure your business plan is tight. Make sure you understand profit and loss. Make sure the market size is big enough for you to enter a market because investors want to understand how they're going to get their money back. And the market's got to be big enough in order to, to, to address that, right? But you got to be resilient when you become an entrepreneur and start raising money because you'll get far more no's than yeses. I could tell you, we've pitched between Tux and, and Power Hands. I, I don't think I'd be exaggerating to say we pitched 300 investors probably. And we probably had less than 10 um, outside of like the crowdfunding we did. So you think about those kind of those kind of ratios. Those are not great ratios, right? You've got to be willing to have more more people tell you no than yes. And there's always a value difference, right? Uh, the value that I have on my business and what I think it's worth, an investor is typically going to have a different value as is in, in, in any kind of commerce. And so I think being resilient, again, using that term uh, and knowing that it's not going to be easy. You're not going to pitch the first person. They're going to say yes. Everyone's not going to like your idea. You're going to come across people that that uh, may down your project or down your idea or make you feel bad or what have you. But I think it's important to uh, to stay even keel mm -hmm. and to understand that you never know that individual could be someone that connects you to the to the funding you get. So it's just you stay positive. You take the feedback as it comes and you use it to get better and. And, uh, and hone your skills when it comes to fundraising. But fundraising is an art. It is definitely an art. But having your numbers together, understanding your numbers, understanding your market, understanding your customer, and uh, and making sure that you have a, differenti a differentiator in your product is is key to uh, getting people to at least listen because there's so many there's so many things out there today trying to get funding. You got to make sure you have a differentiator. What you just said, first of all, is basically an MBA course. So, <laughs> hey, everyone, you should thank Darnell for... <laughs> giving this for free, but also 
it goes back to the quote you mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Nothing is ever as good or bad as your brain thinks it is. So yeah, you might be getting rejected today, but if you keep going, you don't know what awaits you tomorrow. Your big funding round could be coming tomorrow. How did you initially finance the business? Yeah, so initially, which which I think is important, and I have a little bit of a different view um, on fundraising than I think some some counterparts or some other folks would say, but I think it's very important to put your own money into your business because it holds you accountable to stay into the business and to make sure you're making the right decisions and to make sure there's a, a thoughtfulness around the decisions you're making. I am not a fan of raising money through friends and family. I know that's kind of what they say, you know, you go, you know, personal money, friends, friends and family or friends and fools is, is, as other uh, investors might, might say. I'm not as big on the friends and family raise. I think financing it with your own money and then proving out the model before you go to angel investors, you know, angel investors, because that's typically next step, angel investors, and then you can go, you know, the venture side or what have you. But um, yeah, I think funding with your own money is first and foremost is important. And it really shows you how much you really believe in your business. If, if you've only got 50,000 left in your bank account, and it's going to going to cost you 40 to invest in your business, we'll see, let's see where you see where you're uh, you know, what, what, what you really think about it. I think it's important though. I agree. Pony up. The advice you gave is also going to help you maintain friendships in case for some reason it's not as successful as you're hoping or as you expect. This episode has been chocked full of so much advice. I want to come to one point though. So many athletes love your products. So you mentioned you were coaching an AAU team. You had relationships with athletes in the NBA but when you're a professional athlete, your body is your instrument and the tools that you use are critical to your future success. So even if they like you, even if they're your friend, they might not use your product if it's not good. How did you go about convincing athletes to actually use your product one and two, how important was athlete use and endorsement of your product to growing this company? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is important too. And, it, and it's funny because I actually, I never was really into convincing. Uh, I never was really into convincing or selling athletes on why it was so great. For me, it was always just try it, right? Just try this out, right? And and, and we know that that, that, that weightlifting and, and strength training is, is key because we've been doing it for years and there's several studies around it. So wearing weighted gloves, particularly when we launched with the first product, we're not getting far off what we've done for years and what makes sense functionally. So try it and give me your feedback. And so I think getting a lot of the negative feedback up front allowed the kinks to be worked out so that when other players that I didn't have a relationship with used the product, there was an organic fit and they wanted to continue. And it's been amazing. I mean, I would say 75% of the, the professional athletes, whether it be NBA, NFL, baseball, MMA, boxing, I don't have a personal relationship with. I may only have a personal relationship with 25%. But it's all it's been really good to see orders come through and see certain athletes names on that that I'm a fan of or that I respect or just to get their feedback or just organically see them using the product. I mean, we had a, a trainer and an advisor of ours, uh, Bill Burgos. He was at a gym. Uh, he was at a hotel and Chadwick Bozeman, who played uh, the lead in Black Panther, was actually training with our gloves. And he no had way. seen them on he had seen them on uh, Andre Ward, who's you know a Hall of Fame boxer. And so. The way that it all just kind of tied through and, and different people see it, and, and obviously social media has been such a blessing for a lot of consumer businesses. It, it was just, it's just, it's been amazing the feedback 
without actually paying these people to do this, without having to coerce them into this. It's uh, it's been very very organic, and I think it goes back to whatever you're creating. If you focus on the if you focus on the product and you focus on the customer, you don't have to worry as much about the marketing because the marketing will be there, the word of mouth will be there, the the social media shares will be there. It, it'll be there. That's such incredible advice. And what an awesome story. I got chills <laughs> when it you said awesome that. Story. This has been such a cool <clears throat> conversation. How can people keep up with you and the company? Yeah, so Powerhands, uh, all of our social media handles are Powerhands, P-O-W-E-R-H-A-N-D-Z. Our Facebook is Powerhands Inc. And our Twitter is Powerhands One. I apologize. Uh, Instagram is Powerhands. Our YouTube, Powerhands as well. And then, of course, our, our website. And then my personal is Dr. Jones 32 uh, I'm not a doctor, but that's my Instagram. <laughs> uh, my middle name is Ray. So Dr. Jones 32 was available and that's what I scooped up. But yeah, the, you can you can you can find us there. Looking forward to uh, to continue to educate. We've got a lot of really cool stuff coming in 2023. Awesome. This has been fantastic. And p- people definitely want to download this one and re-listen to it because there's so much good information. Thank you so much, Darnell. I know your time is valuable. So I appreciate you spending time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. I hope you gained wisdom that will help you rule your life. Let's stay connected on social media. We're at Ruling Sports on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Sign up for our weekly newsletter at rulingsports.com and email me your thoughts about the show at alicia at rulingsports.com. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review the show and join us next time.